You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and my co-host is Dr. Mary Osborne, the Director of the Stewart House Museum. Thank you for joining us as we travel through the Key Magazine from 1882 to today. Here we are, another episode of Key Matters, 1897 and 1898, but I get to start with 1897. So we'll begin with what was going on in that year in the world. In the January issue of the journal Engineering, the word computer is first used to refer to a mechanical calculation device. So 1897, that's pretty early. William McKinley was sworn in as the 25th president of the United States, and in the same patriotic theme, the Stars and Stripes Forever, the patriotic march by John Philip Sousa, was performed for the first time. I was interested to notice that the Scientific Humanitarian Committee is founded in Berlin, and that was an LGBT campaigning organization, the first in history. So again, in 1897, that seems really early. Bram Stoker's contemporary gothic horror novel, Dracula, is first published in London. And then back here in the U.S., the Klondike Gold Rush began with the first successful prospectors um, who arrived in Seattle. So I tried to check the, the Washington or the West Coast chapters, and they didn't mention it, so it hasn't hit their radar yet. I had a headache yesterday, so this is fitting. At the Bayer Pharmaceutical Company, pharmacist Felix Hoffman successfully synthesized acetosalicylic acid, however you say that, after isolating a compound from a plant of the spirea family. I have spirea in my backyard. So the company markets it under the brand name aspirin. So the bear company also helped develop a uh, chemical warfare in uh, World War One. Mm-hmm. And you still see their name on uh, terrible garden chemicals that probably should never be used because it'll like kill bald eagles and stuff. So Yeah, a bit of a a storied name, for better or for worse. The Tremont Street Subway in Boston opens, and that was the first underground metro in North America. We're a little bit behind England since they had underground systems much earlier. And then, oh, do you believe in Santa Claus? Well, not anymore. (laughs) Not anymore. Well, in 1897, in September, Francis P. Church uh, responded to a letter to the editor that is now known as the famous, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus letter. And then the first electric bicycle was invented by Hosea Libby, which I assumed was a more modern invention. So I want to know why I didn't get one of those for my seventh birthday and instead got one of those hard to use manual bicycles. I would have preferred an electric bicycle. Folks born in 1897, a ton of terrible Nazis. <laughs> so I skipped through all of them. Like Goebbels was born this year. All must have just celebrated their birthdays um, as, as horrible humans. But anyway, in interesting and inspiring people, Marion Davies, the American actress, was born in 1897, as was Marian Anderson, the African-American contralto. Thornton Wilder, the American dramatist, Frank Capra, the producer, and It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. And Mr. Smith Um, Goes to Washington. mm -hmm. And Bull Connor, not an inspiring person. He was the American civil rights opponent. He was born this year. But then, hello, ladies, Amelia Earhart, the American aviator, was born in 1897. William Faulkner, 
the American writer and Nobel Prize laureate. And then Edith Head, I love Edith Head, the American costume designer. Um, if you had rounder glasses and were maybe a little bit shorter, I think you could pull off a good Edith Head. You have the same sort of chin length bowl haircut hmm. of famous people who died in 1897. There were a number of them, but uh, Brahms was the one that caught my attention, the German composer. So he was born in 1833 and died in 1897. I don't know if you noticed this in, in your issues, but the 1897 magazine includes a title and table of contents for the entire volume, which is great. Cornell is still the editing chapter and publishing, and most of our copies are bound without covers. So we don't actually get to see the covers, we really only see the title pages, which is a little disappointing. So I'm interested to see chapters who may have additional copies of this magazine. Someday we may find what the covers actually look like. The January issue opens with a toast to new initiates and a piece about life among the women students at the University of Toronto. It was submitted by Beta Alpha Chapter at the University of Pennsylvania. <laughs> I was confused. I was like, why is our chapter at Pennsylvania writing about our chapter at Toronto? Well, I wasn't paying attention. Our chapter at Toronto is still 14 years away. They have not yet installed. So this is part of the other articles that they've written about universities around the world and how educational systems are different. So it's still rather cosmopolitan of them to, to be writing articles like this. And if you haven't visited one of the universities in Canada, their system is a bit different than ours in the U.S. And this article describes what we in the U.S. might recognize as a liberal arts course. You have to pass certain subjects for your first three years, like Latin, math, physics, history, before you can focus wholly on your specialized department. And that's in your fourth year when you can focus just on that. And then instead of a major, they call it an honor department. So I'd love to hear from our Canadian sisters to know whether this is still the system that's in place at these Canadian universities and if they recognize that. In the later October issue, they discussed the University of California at Berkeley. And that one's kind of funny because Pi Chapter's reestablishment is addressed but they also write about it as though California is like a foreign country. They describe the school as the great conservative college of the West. <laughs> In the same issue, January 1897 issue, the alumni department meditates upon a question that still persists today, what fraternity life means. The writer states that much of the criticism of fraternities is deserved um, for when one judges a society by its members and the members are neglectful of their duty or thoughtless of it, they don't suffer alone, but their fraternity must suffer with them. So even today with news of such awful behaviors in fraternities and sororities coming out again, some from our own chapters, I just want to keep reminding everyone about our original purposes of pursuing higher education, positively impacting our communities, and supporting one another as we do that. If we focus on those original, those original purposes, I think we'll do a lot better just as a group. In the Parthenon, an extract from the Alpha Phi Quarterly describes the characteristics of a desirable girl, and reading it with a modern eye really makes it difficult to reconcile the four characteristics that they consider to be essential to membership in a women's fraternity. Oof. Character, address, social spirit, and scholarship. And it really does make me miss those early days where scholarship and character were tied for first and the others were barely mentioned. Not to say that they weren't already there because that's the system of higher education as well, but 
oh, that's hard to read. And then the same section discusses whether or not the key should be illustrated. That comes up later because one of the issues is actually late to print because they had a hard time getting the illustrations and they couldn't get everything that they wanted. But this writer suggests that photos from chapters and their meeting halls or houses um, would be great to publish in the magazine. And we'll begin to see that later on. And as we know, fraternity and sorority magazines today often focus on photos and illustrations to, to complement the written word. I appreciate the number of members writing in and encouraging Kappas to always be sure to foster friendships outside of the fraternity. As Bertha Houston from Akron states, we are members of the same great fraternity of the American woman. Sorry, Canadians, we don't have chapters there yet. And it is the duty and pleasure for us to treat everyone we encounter in such a way that she may look back on her college days as the brightest in her life. So I love that message. That's something that we still hear today. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Make sure that you leave an impact that's positive and people remember you for, for the way you treat them. Uh, in the chapter letters, it was cool to see that Beta Epsilon at Barnard announces their six new initiates, including Virginia Gildersleeve, who would become one of their most famous members and awkwardly would have a hand in the dismantling of the fraternity system on Barnard's campus when she later became their dean of women. So it was fun, but maybe a little tough for those of us in the know from the future. And Beta New at Ohio State has three rising young freshmen, one of whom is Dorothy Canfield. She is the daughter of the university president at that time, and she would become Dorothy Canfield Fisher and the face and the name of one of our big wartime efforts helping children impacted by war in Europe. Beta Eta at Stanford is getting closer to becoming the first chapter to build and own its own chapter house. So their January 1897 letter, which was due December 1, 1896, states that they are writing from their own home, a first for them, but it's not the house that they will eventually build and move into just three years later in 1900. Again, I want to whisper back and be like, it's going to get better. <laughs> I know you're excited about your house now, but it gets even better. In the opening of the April issue, there's an article about teaching as a profession for women, but sadly it's not by Florence from St. Lawrence. And then Lucia Heaton, an MD, submitted an article about the medical profession for women. Do you suppose that was one of the influencers for Dr. Berenger or Dr. Crawford? I can't speak for Dr. Berenger, but Dr. Crawford doesn't really seem to have been influenced by other women, except <laughs> she does, I mean, for real. Uh, she mentions a lot of her father, you know, helped her, um, some professors in college. Um, she does mention a doctor at the time, Dr. Dunning, having been one of the first, the first woman ambulance surgeon. But, but no, I mean, I think she was very close to her parents and certainly her mother was an influence in her life. But as far as other doctors, she wanted to be the influencer. She didn't want to want to look to others. There's an interesting statement from the editors that joining a fraternity is very much like getting married. Before you are in it, you don't know what it's like. And after the experiment has been tried, there is no way of going back to the old order of things. <laughs> so that's, a, that's a funny comparison. And Dr. Oz, you'll appreciate that in the personals, uh, Phi from Boston announces that Mary Kingsbury is a candidate for the doctor's degree at Barnard and has been appointed assistant worker at the college settlement at number 95 Rivington Street. A member from Sigma Chapter at Nebraska titles her submission, 
as Greeks and barbarians. And while the title is a little troubling, she notes that the state legislature is considering a ban on all Greek societies at the state university there. So they need to be careful. And she suggests a little care and tact in not shoving one's fraternal affiliation in the face of another. Again, that whole notion that we should work hard to acquaint ourselves with as many people as possible, whether or not they're Kappas. Having this additional relationship and friendship is nice and is wonderful, but it doesn't have to be the only thing. In the In Memoriam section, once again, they describe women, a bunch of them, who caught a cold that later took the dreaded form. So as you mentioned previously, a lot of respiratory illnesses are still difficult to overcome. And I've not really ever been able to understand that fear, I guess, until now. But now it's pretty reminiscent of this great unknown with the COVID-19 pandemic. Will it be a mild or a deadly case? Who will get it? How will it impact them? So it was, it was interesting to be able to try, draw that comparison. In the July issue, Kate Sharp from Upsilon appears right away. They're super proud of her, and they discuss her efforts to found the School of Library Instruction in Illinois, and they talk a bit more about this new field of library science, not new, but professionalizing the field of library science. The chapter annual reports appear early, which leaves a lot less room for larger pieces of news. There's big excitement for the new decade and the new century throughout most of their reports. And then the last bit in the editorials of this issue has been delayed, they say, because of the, the difficulty experienced in obtaining illustrations. They had planned to have pictures of the seven grand presidents and of all the chapters, which, well, it's a lot of pictures, but they had to go to press without some. And in these bound copies, there weren't any images. So I wonder if it was an added pamphlet that wouldn't have been necessarily saved with a copy of the magazine. I don't, I don't know why. I looked at the page numbers and they didn't jump. So I don't know why we don't actually have them within this issue. So in the October issue, after that description of Berkeley, the great conservative university in the West, the grand registrar has submitted a letter to the chapters and I love it. It is describing the duties of the chapter registrar. The fraternity is now 27 years old and they wanna be sure that every chapter is actually collecting items of interest for both their archives and for resources to be used by the chapter. The alumni department begins with the question of signed articles, which as a future reader, I have wondered the same. She asks, why are so many articles unsigned? And does it simply mean, are they a collaboration among the editors? She then argues that perhaps it's very often because only, let's see, it's very often because of modesty or we are more or less ashamed of our work. So she urges more women to step up and take credit where credit is due. And I should mention this article was signed and it was Ellen Talbo from Beta Nu at Ohio State. In the personals, Yoda announced that Maddie Tarbell, remember she's not related to Ida Tarbell, but they did correspond. They're announcing that she received her PhD from Brown and she was the first woman to receive that degree from Brown. So that's exciting. The Parthenon again discusses a vacation home. This is going to come up now <laughs> over and over and over, which now we notice because of our, our piece on the Hearthstone Kappa's own sort of retirement home. This one is Fies Cottage, um, Boston chapter at Brant Rock, Massachusetts. And it was the home of alumna that she essentially loaned for the use by, by the Kappas in the area. They had one woman who managed the expenses and she collected $1 and a half from each for board per week. 
And she also marketed. So I assume that means she did the grocery shopping and arranged for the meals. Actives and alums stayed for a few days or a week at a time, which is such a cool idea. They didn't actually say how many, but even the grand president at the time, Bertha Richmond, she had stayed for a week at the Phi chapter cottage. But what caught my eye is that one of their favorite activities was the three-mile walk to Daniel Webster's homestead. I assume they mean three miles one way, but I suppose it could be three miles round way or round trip. Anyway, I wanted to know, what did they walk in? So we walk all the time. We walk all all around downtown Columbus and in our neighborhood. And my feet are tired after walking both three miles and six miles. And those are in sneakers. So (laughs) were they walking in leather-soled boots? It makes me want to do a a little more research on the footwear in that time period. But I know they didn't necessarily have sneakers, at least not like mine. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing it's some kind of hiking, you know, some kind of boot. I don't think I would have made it because I don't have any arches. So even tennis shoes are, can be painful. And I'm guessing because they were relaxed and it was just them, they weren't necessarily around people that they needed to impress. They maybe didn't wear corsets or didn't have quite as many petticoats in the 1890s, but still it's not like they put on shorts and a t-shirt like I would. So anyway, that's a long walk. And they're in this this last issue, there is a lot of discussion about the summer holiday and the new songbook. They are thrilled with this new 1897 songbook. And then I laughed in the exchanges, uh, the assertion that the June scroll was entirely taken up with Phi Delta Theta interests. So Phi Delta Theta's magazine, they're complaining, they only talk about Phi Delta Theta, and it contained little to attract the attention of an outsider. <laughs> Hello, Key Magazine, pot calling the kettle black. There are a few things in this this volume, especially that may be interesting to others, but not really. It's really specific. So that's 1897. Exciting times. You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum, the Stewart House, is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by the director of the Stewart House Museum and member of Alpha Deuteron Chapter at Monmouth College, Dr. Mary Osborne, and me, Kylie Smith, from Omicron Deuteron Chapter at Simpson College, and the archivist and museum director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.